for visiting on this uh, Daylight Savings uh, morning. Uh, we welcome you. And uh, Rick has already mentioned to me that he's glad everyone's well-rested. There'll be no napping during this service. Um, uh, again, I'm Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us and you would like to share any of your information, uh, questions about the church, um, the center doors in the back, There's right next to them, there's a card you can grab and put some of your information on that card. We'd love to connect with you for a coffee, for a lunch, uh, answer any of your questions, even if it's just a phone call. Um, another announcement, we've got a foundations class that's actually going on right now this morning uh, downstairs below us. If you're newer, you've maybe been through our new people's class and you didn't know that that class was going on this morning, go ahead and sneak down there. Um, they'd love to cover some of the distinctives of our church, kind of who we are, why we do what we do. That's going to happen this week and the next two weeks. We also have an upcoming baptism. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in him for salvation, and you have not been baptized, um, feel free to talk to me. My name is Paul. Uh, you can email me if you're interested in learning more about that or talk to another one of our elders about that. Our text for today is on the same page in your Bible, in the pew in front of you, that it's been on for the last like two months. It's page 1014. The text I'll be reading is 1 Peter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. If you're able, please stand as I read God's word. This is God's word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us and the freedom we have in this country to worship together, to study and learn together. But today we do pray for our fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who don't have this freedom. But may they see in their life circumstances your presence and grow even if life circumstances are difficult, persecution, suffering, may they know that you're with them. So be with us today, Lord, for we pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> I've entitled a message this morning, Experiencing Love in All Directions. And I do this because love is one of those things that people really need to know about. They really want to experience love in their life. And sometimes we can talk about it in such a way that it becomes almost sort of a, a cliche of sorts. In other words, we don't really understand love in its deepest, most meaningful, most powerful sense. 
But what Peter's doing today in this passage is showing us what it means for us as believers to love one another, to show that love for one another. Now, if you've been with us the past several weeks, a couple months now nearly, uh, we've covered some ground in Peter, even though we're still on the same page, chapter 1. But in this chapter, Peter begins in verse 3 by telling us, telling them that they were born again with a living hope. So he begins with this idea that they are born again. And that's so fundamental to everything that we're going to talk about in our life, in, 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 in this sermon this morning. We have to first be born again. But then he very quickly moves on to the idea of suffering. And so he tells these congregations, these believers, both Jews and Gentiles spread throughout the Asian world, that they will endure suffering. <clears throat> suffering in their life will come. And that's one thing we know we can never escape. It's part of what our life is. And so the theme that Peter is developing now as we move a little further through these passages is this, that in your life you will endure suffering. You will endure trials and troubles will come in life. But you can respond in one of two ways. Either you can allow that suffering, those difficult times, to harden you, to break you and to crush you, or you can use those moments in life to help you grow, to refine you and to strengthen you. That's a general theme of what Peter is doing in this first chapter. And as we work our way through this chapter, we see now this theme being more fully explicated. He's telling us that in life we will suffer. There will be hard times, but there's a difference. If you're a believer, you can grow through that. Now, you've all heard the saying that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. What's the difference? On the one hand, the same sun, the same circumstances, the same difficult times in life, the suffering we go through, on the one hand, it can reach down and harden somebody. On the other hand, like the wax, it can soften them, make them more pliable. What's the difference? It's not the sun. We all go through the same sort of circumstances, the same difficulties and suffering in life. The difference is what's on the inside. What Peter's doing is saying that on the inside, as a believer, being born again, you have a new life within you. And with that new life, you're able now to respond differently, to live differently. And so your life is not one where you're always being hardened and becoming angry and becoming bitter and envious and malicious. Instead, it's one where you're living open, loving, engaging with other people. The same circumstances responds in two different ways between dif uh, different people. And so Peter wants to be those kind of people that grow through circumstances and learn to love one another. Now, as we come to this passage, we see a number of things being developed. First, Peter talks about this idea of loving one another in verse 22. But what I want to do is put that on hold for just a moment and go to verses 23 to 25 and talk first about this idea of being born again. Now, Peter, in chapter 1, raised born again this idea back in verse 3. You're born again to a living hope. And so that's where he begins. That's where everything must begin. And then he moves on to the admonition that we now must love one another. But let's take a look at this idea here of being born again. Now, you might say that that's kind of obvious. We know this. We've talked about this many times. Many of us know what it means to be born again and being a born again believer. But sometimes there are certain things that you just want to kind of hit on a regular basis. You just can't hear too much of it. You have to always know this. And this is one because this is so foundational. And I may not have spent much time on it this morning, except for a recent survey that was done by Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul. They ask a, a lot of questions, do a, a Gallup-type survey, but uh, they ask questions, and they ask questions about being born again. 
And they find out that there's, if you took the general populace of those who call themselves Christians, right? Just generally those who say, I'm a Christian. They ask them, what kind of a Christian are you? What do you believe in? Only about two thirds or some number like that believe that in order to be a Christian, you have to be born again. In other words, they see being born again as something of like being a party or denomination within Christianity. And so on the one hand, you have those Christians who are just uh, general Christians. They're loving people. They like to go to church. They like the sacraments and the, uh, the formality of it all. But then there are those born-again Christians, those evangelicals, those people who are involved in politics or whatever their gripes may be. You see, so they view being born again as being sort of a segment of Christianity. And so just to make it obvious, let's just say you can't be a Christian of any type until you're born again. I mean, that's where everything starts. That's where Peter starts. You have to first be born again. So let me just say a few things about this idea about being born again. First of all, it's central to everything. Everything in your life centers around this idea that a person is born again. The admonition that Peter gives in this passage to love one another, you can't do that until you're first born again. That's foundational to everything. So it's central. And there is, of course, a lot of bad theology that will say that, well, you just have to be pardoned. You want to be pardoned. That's all life is. It's just forgiveness. God is a God of love. God is a God of forgiveness. And that's all you need. And then you need to live a moral life. Christianity is perceived as being something of just living a moral type of life. Well, what Peter says is that's not the beginning of it. That's the result of being born again. All of that flows out of the circumstance of a person who's been born again. And so first we can say it's central. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. So you see, being a Christian doesn't mean simply that we're pardoned. It means that we're given new life. And that's the first thing. So being born again is central. Secondly, it's necessary. Notice in our passage as well up here in verse uh, 24. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What Peter is describing here from the book of Isaiah is this passage that describes all of our lives like grass. We are temporal. We fade. We pass. The new birth is what makes us eternal. It gives us that eternal holy nature that God has promised to us. And so when we see this, we see that there's something more significant here. You remember when Jesus was uh, encountered that one night, as uh, Ben mentioned earlier, by Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him, Rabbi, you know, you're a wonderful teacher. So the first thing he does is to recognize Jesus as a great teacher. And then he asks, you know, look at all the things I've done. What does Jesus say? He says, Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, when Jesus said that, remember, he's talking to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, which means he was well-educated, he was well-positioned in society, he was well-recognized, he was well-respected. Nicodemus had everything going for him. And then Jesus says, you have to be born again. Now, when Nicodemus hears that, and sometimes it's taught this way, but this is not the way it's understood. When Nicodemus hears Jesus say, you must be born again, how can I be born when I'm old? Can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? He's not speaking literally there. Nicodemus is following on the figurative language that Jesus is using, this metaphor, asking, how can I be born again? Can I start all over again spiritually? Nicodemus is asking, 
I've done so many good things. I've reached such a status. I'm so well-educated. People respect me. Now you want me to start over from the beginning. And Jesus says, that's exactly it. You have to start from the beginning. So being born again is necessary. Now, on the one hand, he says this to Nicodemus, who's well-respected, right? On the other hand, we have somebody, let's say, like Mary Magdalene, a prostitute. Now, in Jewish society, they would see Nicodemus being way up here and and Mary Magdalene being way down here, uh, the dregs of society. And so sometimes we see people that way as well. We think they're those who are better than others, right? But look at it from God's perspective. Imagine if you've ever had a, a, a been uh, in the mountains on a cliff. If you look at somebody that's on a 100-foot cliff, I mean, they look way up there, right? And you look way down there. So it, it depends on perspective. And the reason we think somebody on a 100-foot cliff looks so high up is because we have a very limited perspective. But imagine somebody flying over in a, a, a jet at 30,000 feet looking down. There's no difference between them, right? And so it's all a matter of perspective. When you look at where we're at from God's perspective, there's no difference between Mary Magdalene and Nicodemus. We're all sinners in the same way. And so we don't conceive of ourselves as being better than others. And that's so fundamental to our entire way of thinking and living. We understand God looks down and says, you're all way down below. You're all 30,000 feet short of where I'm at. The 100 feet higher that Nicodemus might be doesn't mean anything. And so it's necessary that we be born again. Uh, Again, you can think of uh, people who are sick, uh, those who are sick. You have one person who's there ailing and wailing and and feeling so horrible, and then you have somebody else who's sitting there kind of feeling fine. What you don't know, perhaps, is a person that's wailing and making all the noise and, oh, my pain and all this, they might be just uh, cured with a simple medication. But the guy who thinks he's doing so well might, in fact, have cancer that's about to take him down. That's the way sin is, and we can see this in people's lives. Some people look like they're very sick. They look like they're very sinful. They're very far on the outreaches of society. They're very bad, and we can look down on them in that way. But you look at other good people, you think, well, that's a good person. God sees us all the same. We're all sick in different ways. And so being born again is necessary. And then third, we see in this passage, it's also definite, you have been born again. The, the word used here, have been born again, is a perfect passive, which means two things. First of all, the passive aspect of it means it's something that's happened to you. You didn't cause yourself to be born again. Just like you didn't cause yourself to be born the first time physically, naturally, you didn't cause yourself to be born again spiritually. That's God's action in us. So it's passive. You didn't do it. God did. The second thing is it's in the perfect tense in Greek, which means... It's a completed action that has permanent results. You have been born again, and you can't undo that. You can't go backwards. And so when you're born again, you don't lose that. And so this idea of being born again has parallels to the physical world, right? Physical birth. A couple of things. First of all, uh, in, in labor, we talked this morning, uh, Ben did again, mentioning that there's a number of ladies here who were with child. Now, if you've had one child... Uh, and you ask a lady that's had one child, she can tell you what having, uh, delivering ch- children like. And what she'll do is describe what her experience was like with her one child. Either it was very easy or it was very hard, it was very long, it came very fast. And so you can have these experiences and talk about it this way. But if you talk perhaps with a, a lady that's delivered six, seven children, she might tell you, I don't know, they're all different. Some come quick, some come slow, some are painful, some are not so painful. Well, they're all painful. Let's start over. They're all very, very painful, or they're just very painful, right? But either way, 
you understand there's differences. The same thing spiritually. Uh, first, it's definite. There's actually a physical birth that's definite. But you may not always know that. C. Everett Coop, you might remember, was the Surgeon General of the United States in the 1980s. He was good friends with Francis Schaeffer. Before Coop became Surgeon General, he uh, taught at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia and was a, a good believer, went to 10th Presbyterian, uh, James Montgomery Boyce's church there. And Coop tells a story of uh, inviting another fellow doctor to go to church with him, kind of see what church is like, see what Christianity is about. And so this doctor comes to church and he's listening to these sermons and early on the doctor's sort of evaluating them. Well, that's interesting, learning a little bit, singing the songs, even if he doesn't really believe or understand all of this. As time passes, Coop says, this doctor friend of his became a believer, even though this doctor couldn't say when it was. It just appeared in this man's life. At some point, he realized he was believing the message being taught. He was singing praises to God from his own heart. And that's sometimes true of us. Some of you have a new birth experience. It's very clear, very definite. You know about it. You had a dramatic change in life. And others, you really can't pinpoint that moment in life when it happened. And that's okay, as long as you know that it did happen. And so the new birth is definite, even if you can't pinpoint the date. If you've been raised in church, you may have felt it and understood that, confirmed it in times in your life. But you're, it's definite. You have to be born again. And the third thing is it's supernatural. He says in this passage, it's not a perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, we often think of the new birth in terms of the mother's engagement in it. But really what's being talked about here is the father's contribution. When you're born physically, you're born of perishable seed and you will die. When you're born spiritually, you're born of imperishable seed, given eternal life. And so this is the eternal nature of it. It's supernatural. It's something that God does. And so Peter wants us first to understand that this is where it all begins, with a new birth. All right, so we have that. So we see in this passage, it begins with a new birth. Now let's go back to verse 22 and pick up here on this idea of loving one another. Experiencing love in all directions is our topic today, and it's learning that we can experience first God's love from above, and then learn to experience and give brotherly love, sisterly love, one to each other in this life, in this congregation, in this meeting. That's what Christianity is about. It's experiencing love upward and outward in all directions. And so we see in this passage, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. One of the necessary signs of, of being a Christian is that you love one another. Now he talks about brotherly love here. And this is not patriarchal in that sense. They use this word generically in the first century. Uh, we still do today. Sometimes people want to move away from that. But the brotherly love is fellow Christian love. It's brotherly love, sisterly love. It's fellowship love. And so the point that Peter's making is it's our obligation, God's command to us, his call to us to demonstrate this sort of fellowship Christian love, this love with each other. And this, he says, is central. You have to do that. Now, he makes a few points in here that we're going to see. First of all, it's a sincere brotherly love and it's earnest. We'll talk about these two things. But first of all, let me give you two just sort of basic principles to begin with some background things. When you think about this sort of love, remember, it's an illusion and you're, you're deceiving yourself if you think you can demonstrate this sort of Christian love, the love of 
the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments, it's an illusion to think you can do that all on your own. Now, there's a lot of people who think they can, that they can kind of engage in love with one another. Uh, you know, they can show this sort of a thing. But what Peter's talking about here is a result of being born again. And if you're not born again, this sort of love is not manifested. And there are in churches people who drift in and, and they engage in fellowship and they act like they're all concerned and all involved, but you know what they're there for? To manipulate, to, to find uh, people to sell insurance to, something like that. And so a lot of times there's that sort of engagement. Now they may feel, you may feel like, boy, that guy really likes me. He's just a salesman. And a lot of times people kind of engage with people in that sort of a way. But what Peter's talking about is a love that's different from that. And so we can't simply do this on our own. And what happens in our life is is we we need to learn to grow into this love, what this love means. (coughs) Now, this love we see here, we can ask you a question uh, and illustrate it. Uh, What do you do when somebody abuses you or takes advantage of you? There's a couple of things. Your first response might be, to go after them and seek justice, all right? Somebody takes advantage of you, abuses you, you go after them and you seek justice and you hate them. You get angry with them. And we all have kind of experienced this in our, in our lives, I'm sure, but you go after them. So that's the first response. And so that's a person who just, uh, you know, is, is conflict, conflict oriented. They see conflict as a part of their life. They're ready to fight. The second response, if you're abused or taken advantage of in some ways, you might just withdraw, right? And pull back and just kind of take it and and just kind of go by. But what happens is on the inside, you still hate them. You're still angry with them. You're still resentful of what they did to you. But there's a third response, and that's what the scriptures talk about, is that you go to them and reconcile with them and love them. And so if you have a problem with somebody, if somebody's harmed you in some way or taken advantage of you or offended you in some way, then you go to them in love. That's what Peter's talking about with this brotherly love. It's something that changes the way, we, the way we view life, the way we handle circumstances. And so you don't go after them in anger, seeking justice and hate. You don't just withdraw and hold it in and, and be resentful with hate and envy. Instead, you go to reconcile with them. And so Peter, when he talks about this brotherly love, is talking about a love like that. And so we can't do this on our own. The love that he's calling us to show is not something we can do on our own. Secondly... This loving spirit is only possible because we're born again. This type of Christian love is only possible because we've been born again. But it's also a necessary demonstration and proof that you're born again. If you can't show Christian love with another person, you might then ask yourself whether or not you really are a believer. If you're always hostile, always engaging in anger, and not reconciling with people you might ask yourself whether you're spiritually where you should be. And so we can't do this on our own. Instead, we need the Spirit working in our life. Now, we can kind of think about how do you test whether somebody's a believer. Now, let's not talk about how you test somebody else. Let's talk about how you might test yourself. A couple of things. We might think of a doctrinal test, right? There's a doctrinal test. There's certain things to be a Christian you have to know and understand and believe. You have to know there's a God understand who God is, understand who Christ is, and believe what Christ has done for us. So you have to know and understand certain doctrines. You have to understand that there's sin in the world, and more specifically, you're a sinner. And so you have to understand what sin is. And you have to understand that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, so there's no work that you can do. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to 
recompense God for the sin you've committed. Instead, you accept Christ and his righteousness now becomes your righteousness. And so that's a doctrinal test. And if you get those sort of things wrong, if in fact you think that I can become a believer because I'm a good person and I've kind of found myself on the scales weighing pretty good against others, and so relative to the others in the world, I'm a pretty good guy, then you're not a believer. That's not what Christianity is. And so there's a doctrinal test. Secondly, we might conceive of a moral test. Look at how you live morally. If you're a believer, there should be a spiritual change in your life, the way you engage things morally. And so you don't uh, lie. Remember the Ten Commandments? We talked about these not long ago, right? Uh, These sort of things uh, are purified from your life. And that's what Peter's talking about. You purify your souls from these things. And so there's this moral test. So you don't lie, you don't steal, uh, you keep things in its proper place. So there's a moral test. But third, we might conceive of what Peter's talking about here, and that's something of a relationship test, a social test. And so there's doctrinal, there's moral, and then there's social, which is loving one another, engaging with each other, being there for each other. That's what Peter's getting at here. Now, you can pass the, the, the doctrinal test. I mean, I could lay it out there, uh, 20 questions, and you could get 100 on it by answering all the questions correctly and still not be a Christian. You might say all these things, know all these things because you're raised in a church and you've kind of understood these things from the beginning, and you could pass that test and still not be a believer. You could be a good moral person. You don't lie, cheat, and steal. You're good to your neighbors, good to one another, and still not be a believer. You might pass the moral test and still not be a believer. And you might be able to pass a doctrine, the moral test, because you were raised that way, you were well-raised, you're well-taught, you're morally fastidious in your life, you're trying to be a good person, you're trying to do all these things and still not be a believer. But the third one is perhaps the acid test of it, the, spo- the social test, this relationship test. If you have right doctrine and you, you're living a good life, but you don't engage with other believers, you're not involved with other believers, you don't feel a sense of Christian community with other believers, then maybe there's something wrong in your life also. What Peter's talking about here is if you're a true believer, born again with this living hope, and you have this within you, brotherly love is what's going to follow out of it. That's what you're going to have, this Christian love one for another. And if you don't feel any desire to be with other Christians, any desire to, to, to pray with one another, to hold one another, to support one another through difficult times, if you have none of that in your heart and your life, then maybe that's the acid test that you need to examine to see whether or not you're truly in the faith. Peter says, if you're in the faith, this is what you will show. You will demonstrate this sort of sincere and earnest brotherly love. So that's the first two things. Now let's talk about these two ideas, about these these two ideas. The first, sincere brotherly love. How can you show sincere uh, brotherly love? (coughs) Love is a hard thing. And we could say a lot of things about that. But when you think about love, uh, it's difficult. Sometimes uh, we struggle with each other because we each struggle in our own lives. And so uh, perhaps you have uh, children who have uh, made bad choices in life, who's going down the wrong road, and, and you love them, but you don't know how to handle that. With other believers too, we have these sort of circumstances. And so uh, in love, we need to take care of each other. Now, if you see somebody that you love who's on a self-destructive path, they're making choices 
that will ruin them, that will destroy them, and you do nothing for them, you don't intercede on behalf of them, then you might ask yourself whether you really love them. You might think, well, if I confront this person about what is an obvious sin in their life, their obvious failure in their spiritual life to obey certain commands, to do certain things, if I don't do that, you might say, I don't want to do that because I don't want to make them mad at me, right? I don't want them to be upset with me. Then who are you really concerned about? You're really concerned about yourself and not that other person. True love requires us sometimes to step into the lives of other people and to say to them, you need help and I'm here to help you. Now we have to be careful about how you do that, right? You can't just always be judgmental and interceding where you're not welcome. But if you love somebody and you're engaged in a relationship, a Christian relationship with them, then you will find a place, you will find a time and you'll find a way that you can engage with them. And so if you're part of a small group or you have a, a, a study that you're with or a Christian family, uh, here, then you can engage with people. And when people struggle, when they have difficulties and troubles in life, you can be there for them and help them through that. And we all, I think in our spiritual life, as we're going to see shortly, we all grow through various stages spiritually. And when we begin the Christian life in the beginning, as new believers... We engage in all sorts of temptations and struggles that come that confront us. We need other believers who are invested in our life, helping us and being there with us and for us. And so the first thing we want to remember is we need to engage with one another. That's what love is. If you go to a, a house and the floor is a mess, right? It's got dirt all over it, crusty dirt. Uh, you can do one of two things. You can uh, take a pail of water and in pour it all over the floor. And what do you do is you spread that dirt all over the floor. Now, now it was located in one place and now it's spread all over the place because the water's just sloshed it everywhere. Instead of doing that, what you want to do is just take the, the mop bucket and, and, and get a little bit of water and clean up a little bit of it, then clean the mop and then come back and clean a little bit and then back and forth until you get it cleaned up. You want to keep the troublesome spot in a location. When you engage with a fellow Christian, a fellow believer, somebody that you have this relationship with, you can come at them in a very uh, over-the-top sort of way, sort of blasting them completely and just make it worse. Or you can be more tactful and more engaged with them in a small way and help them incrementally grow spiritually. And I think that's what Peter's getting at when he talks about this spiritual growth, this sincere, earnest spiritual growth in love. And so we need this. Now, he says also, besides a sincere brotherly love, he says we need to love one another earnestly or deeply. Now, the word used here, earnestly or deeply, is interesting. It's a word that's used of, like, endurance. It's endurance. <coughs> there is, let me give you an example. Uh, years ago, it's 20 years ago now, it's surprising how quickly time flies. But 20 years ago, I had a very good friend. His name was Paul Felix. Uh, we studied Greek together, spent a lot of time together. And he had a little uh, daughter who was about uh, 8, 9, 10, 12 at the time growing up, whose name was Allison. Now, does anybody know who Allison Felix is? You do every four years. She is America's premier runner, a female runner. She's won six gold medals at the Olympics, both at, at Athens and, uh, and uh, uh, London, uh, Rio. 
uh, Beijing. She's won Olympic medals. Now, Allison Felix, and you'll see her every four years in the Summer Olympics, and I think she's retired now. She wins Olympic medals because she's a runner that runs hard, runs well. Now, if you're a runner like Allison is, you run hard for those 400 meters, and then you need to rest. But you get back out there tomorrow, and you run hard again, and then you rest. But you run hard again, and you keep at it over and over again. And so for somebody like Allison, she can run that fast and endure that long because she's trained herself to be that way, to love that way, is how we can parallel this. Love is like that. You learn to love somebody, you reach out there. The word used here of loving uh, earnestly or loving deeply is to run, is to love that way. It's to love with endurance. And so you stretch yourself. Now you see what happens when you love that way, you stretch yourself out. Sometimes you need to rest, you need to come back. But by doing that, you strengthen yourself so you can love more and more as you grow stronger in the Christian faith. On the other hand, in the 20 years where Allison was learning how to run fast and run hard and run long, other people who may have also had gifts sat on the couch and didn't do anything. Now, you might think, boy, that guy's really resting up, right? Really resting up. And so one day he's going to be all rested up, ready to go. What you find out is you've lost your ability to run at all. Now, have, has anybody had that happen to them? You don't know where it went. You used to be able to, and now you can't. You see, if you don't love, you might act like, you know, oh, I just, you know, don't want to be hurt, so I'm ready to love. But if you don't stretch yourself, and that's what this word means, is to stretch yourself hard out there. Now, it doesn't mean that you exhaust yourself. It's kind of like a forest. Uh, you, you chop down some trees, but you replant before you chop down the rest of them. So you have to keep replanting. You have to keep rejuvenating yourself. But this spiritual love, Christian love, is always reaching outward. It's always stretching itself, knowing that we have to keep reaching outward with this love. And so when he speaks of this earnest love, he's talking about it in this way. <clears throat> it sometimes requires us to show forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is one of the hardest things we have to learn how to do. On the one hand, if somebody offends us, we can go to them and extract vengeance. We can demand that they repay us, fix us. So if, for example, uh, you lend me uh, uh, your uh, radio and I break your radio, you can come to me and you can say, uh, you have to pay the cost of the radio and I'll, I'll pay you the cost of the radio. Or you can come and say, I forgive you. So the forgiveness means that you bear the loss. Now for us spiritually, forgiveness sometimes means that the other person doesn't fully recompense us, that we suffer the loss. And that's kind of what God's forgiveness is in Christ. The loss that we caused because of our sin is paid for by Christ. He doesn't put it on us. We're not forgiven and paid up because of what we do. Instead, we're paid up and forgiven because of what he did. So Christ bears the loss. The offended one bears the cost you see. And that's kind of what love has to be with us as well. Sometimes when we're the offended one, we have to learn to bear the cost, to forgive and let go where somebody's offended us. And so when Peter writes it to these churches and tells them to enjoy this brotherly love, sometimes it requires us to forgive and to let go when others have offended us. 
And so we see these uh, two uh, principles, sincere brotherly love, that's an earnest one. But now let's talk a little bit about some practical principles of spiritual growth in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. So he says here, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk (coughs) that by it you may grow up in salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the point he makes here is that we have to grow up. So let's talk about what it means to grow up. Growing up, up in the spiritual life is to recognize that our life as believers is something of a journey. It's not simply becoming a Christian at, at when you're born again. That's an event that happens. There's a definite, specific time when you're born again. But after that, everything is a journey. Now, if you can kind of think of that uh, back in the pioneer days, right? Back in the pioneer days when they, they had to cross the continent, before there were roads and, and restaurants and bathrooms and everything along the way, they had to cross. The first thing they had to do was learn how to navigate rivers, right? They had to learn how to cross big rivers. And so somebody who's starting out as a pioneer on a journey crossing the country has to learn the skill of crossing big rivers. And so you finally find a way, and hopefully you're, you're with somebody who's a guide that can teach you. And after you've been taught, after you've experienced that, you now know how to do that yourself. And so when you face the next big river in life, you can carry it on your own. But now you're out there in the wilderness and you're, you're out there and you, you need food. You have to now learn how to supply your own food, how to hunt on the path, how to farm or how to uh, collect grain and, and food along the path. And so may, where you may not have known how to do that before, you're now learning how to do that out there in the, the, the open plains, the desert. You might have to learn how to climb mountains and cross mountain passes where you'd never seen such things before. But with guidance and help, you now experience that and you've now crossed the mountain pass. You have to learn how to endure the cold that you may not have experienced before. And before you know it, you've made it across the continent. And by the time you've now made this journey, you can look back and say, I didn't know how to do these certain things when I began, but now I do. And the Christian life is often a lot like that. We are on a journey and we learn certain life skills, things in life that help us, that uh, we grow from. And we might then be a person who's able to look back and help somebody else who for the first time is crossing a river, who for the first time is needing to supply their own food. You can't shop at a grocery store. Who's needing now to cross a mountain? We can learn to be the kind of people that can help others do that. And so this Christian life is a lot like a journey like that where we need to now learn these life skills. And what Paul or Peter is talking about here is this idea of we need to grow up. And he talks about these uh, things. He says that we need to uh, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These are the skills we have to learn in life. It's like parenting a child. <coughs> a, a child needs help. The child needs instruction. A, t- a child needs to understand the right things to do. A parent who neglects a child, who doesn't feed a child, who doesn't clothe and and support a child, a a parent who does that is guilty of what? Child neglect. If you're an infant, spiritually, you need somebody with more advanced life skills to help you along the way. And that's what this relationship is in the church. This brotherly love is helping one another in and on our spiritual journey. And so we see, first of all, we need to grow up. Secondly, we see, as new believers, we all start as infants. You see what he says here? 
like newborn infants. Now, when I read these words, like newborn infants, you think, oh, that's so uh, precious. We love infants. But what he's really saying here is more something of an insult. When he says that as a new believer, you're like an infant, Peter is saying is like a, a physical infant, you're helpless, you can't food, you feed yourself, you can't clothe yourself, you're in need of others, you're dependent on others. And so when Peter says, like newborn infants, uh, we need to uh, long for pure spiritual milk, he's reminding us that we all begin at that very point, needing spiritual milk. So as a new believer, we begin at that point at the beginning. We need that. Now, if you can flip over just a couple of pages for just a moment, over to 1 John. If you go from 1 Peter, you go to 2 Peter, then you're right in 1 John. So it's just a couple of pages over, chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I'm writing, or chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome. When John writes this epistle to these new believers in his churches, and remember, John kind of worked in Ephesus and Asia Minor, he writes these words. He's recognizing in some fashion that there are stages of spiritual growth we go through. There's the infant stage, there's a young man stage, the adolescent stage, and there's the full-grown stage where you're a father or a mother. And spiritually, it's not as though there are three distinct stages where you clearly pass from one to the other. It's more of a continuum, of course. But there are stages in the spiritual life, in our spiritual growth. And so what John is doing is recognizing this idea. Now, you know the song Amazing Grace written by uh, John Newton. John Newton, the slave trader, wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote so much more than that. He wrote a lot of letters, and in some of his letters, he describes uh, the, uh, the uh, spiritual things, very theologically deep. And he takes a verse from Mark chapter 4, verse 28, that says, The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when Newton writes this, he describes these three stages, <coughs> which parallels John's. There's a beginning, there's a middle, then there's full growth. And so let's talk about these sort of ideas the infancy stage. What does an infant need? First of all, they're helpless. But what does John say here? In infancies, he says that you know your sins are forgiven. The first thing you need to know to pass out of the stage of infancy is to know that your sins are forgiven. Now, a lot of believers, when they become a new believer, they appreciate the fact that their sins are forgiven. But what they have learned, uh, have to unlearn is that legalistic sort of thing they may have had from the past where they thought they could self-justify themselves, that they really were a good person. In becoming a believer, you have to re remove yourself as your own savior and instead acknowledge that you need a new savior. And so every unbeliever, whatever uh, lifestyle they have, whatever uh, religion they have or philosophy they have, every unbeliever believes in some way that they are their own savior, whether through their good works and so they do these sort of things or whatever it may be. To become a Christian, you have to no longer rely on your own good uh, life, your own good works, but instead rely on what Christ has done. And so in infancy, what John is saying is you have to now 
know that your sins are forgiven. And a lot of people don't understand that. They're still confused by grace and works. You are never saved by your works. But as a believer, your good works do follow. That's the result of being a believer. So that's the infancy stage. Then there's the adolescent stage. He tells uh, these young men, John does, you have overcome the evil one. Now, when uh, you had an infant, a child, right? We see uh, mothers carrying their infants into the uh, building. Uh, They take care of them. They hold them. They carry them to the car. And then they grow their one, two. They walk to the car. They hold their hand across the street. That's what you do with an infant, right? But one day that infant grows up. And what do you have to do? You have to learn to let their hand go. While you may have walked them to school in kindergarten and first grade, at some point you have to be willing to let them go to school on their own. For a a child whose mother and father is holding their hand, walking them, that's very comforting. It's very reassuring. But the first time your parent lets your hand go and you have to now go on your own, that can be very traumatic. And in the Christian life as well, as a new believer, you feel like you've got, you know, God's spirit in your life and you feel very strong in that and comfortable in that and very reassured in that. But but after you've been a believer for some time, and a lot of us would uh, say this, you will find a point in your life where you don't feel the presence of God. You don't feel that God is with you. And that's a problem. Infants need to feel something. But we all need to be dependent upon. So while we're all dependent on God, we may not always feel God's presence. The difficult part of being an adolescent, both physically and spiritually, is is you don't have that constant feeling of a parent being with you. You're on your own now. And that can be traumatic. And so in the Christian life, the first time you feel like you're on your own without God's presence, you need to have strengthened yourself through his word. And that's why John talks about this, nursing this on spiritual milk on, uh, on, and growing in this way. We have to have that. And so in our spiritual adolescent life, we have to know how to endure life and circumstances, even if we don't feel God's presence. And then he moves on from that, John does and Peter does as well, to that sort of spiritual adulthood where now we are in communion with God. And John talks about that, you know the Father. You now know the Father. And that's what happens spiritually when we study the scriptures, make them a part of our life, feed on the word. It's like digestion, right? You have to, to chew something. You have to cut it up and then chew it and then digest it. Think about it that way. That's like a Bible study. You have to just open the scriptures and read them. Cut them up in this sense, you know, kind of read them closely. Think about them. What are they saying? What do they mean? And then you have to make them a part of your life and then chew on them. And then digest them, giving yourself strength. Spiritually, we do the same thing in this sense. We, we grow spiritually because we digest God's word. That's what makes us strong. And so then we can say we do know the Father. So even in those times in life where troubles come, You have built such a relationship with God through your study, through uh, listening to sermons and and prayer with one another and loving one another, that you now know that you are no longer an infant, no longer an adolescent. You don't need someone to hold your hand. You don't need uh, uh, to feel uh, uh, vacuous in your life through difficult times, but you know you have all you need in God the Father. What you are now needing to do is hold the hand of others. Now, all of us, I think, need that. We need to know that somebody loves us, that somebody is there for us. And that's the one thing people struggle with. If you're not a Christian, you're in the world, you may have uh, problems with your parents and your kids, and you don't like the people you work with or the people you go to school with. People, 
don't feel that there's anybody who loves them. But that's the one thing we have is we can know, we can say that when you come here, you know there's fellow believers who love you in, in a true spiritual sense. They have these uh, <clears throat> shows on TV. I'm going to get real quick here. Uh, my uh, if, if daughters and I, we've watched a couple shows in the past. They had this show called The Biggest Loser, right? So these people, they're, they're trying to lose weight. So they come on the show weighing 400 pounds, and after about uh, three months, they weigh 112. Uh, they lose a lot of pounds dramatically. Very unhealthy to lose 20 pounds a week, but that's what they do. But, uh, but then, because if you don't lose enough pounds, the, the, the person who lost the less amount, they get uh, kicked off the show. And then after about three or four or five weeks of this, and they've known each other for about two weeks, when one guy gets kicked off, oh, they're hugging, oh, I love you so much. And, and you wonder, how much could you really love a person that you've only known for two weeks? Well, this is what I think they're saying. They have struggled together. They have fought together. And when one of them is kicked off, they, they do love that person. They may not have known them for very long, but they've struggled and endured life with them. And when you become a believer, you engage with other believers who you may not have known very long, but you can still know as a fellow believer you love them. You can meet fellow believers on the mission field and see the joy in their life and love them having never met them before. That's what this Christian spiritual love is about that Peter's talking about here. So we can know that. I think what we can do in this is, is think about it this way. Is uh, love is, is, the, is what drives us. It's what controls us. It's what makes us a church. You can join a club and have friends to play checkers with. Or as a believer and a member of this congregation, know what true spiritual love is. Learn to invest yourself in the lives of others. Let me just ask you to do one thing. Before you leave the building today, find somebody who you've not said this to before and just give them a hug and say, I want you to know I love you as a brother. I love you as a sister. Do that today before you leave. And then when you come back next week, do it again. All right, learn to, to hold each other like that, to express this sort of thing to one another so that we know that there is this brotherly love that we have here, this Christian love. Let's stand as we pray. Our fathers, we come before you, we thank you for these words from Peter, encouraging us to this brotherly love, this sincere, earnest love for one another. May we grow spiritually in this congregation or wherever we worship, may we always be that person who's reaching out in love for others, expressing that, supporting one another, because we know that's what this church is about, your church is about, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.